welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. I'm guessing that today's guest is no stranger to many of you in the world of continuing healthcare education. Lawrence Sherman is president of Meducate Global and describes himself as a learning facilitator, a global educator, and an education futurist. He's deeply committed to lifelong learning and to humour as a learning tool. He also lives in Dundee, Scotland, for part of the year. We'll let that slide. A city known when I was growing up for the three J's, jute, jam, and journalism. Join us for a conversation that touches on needs assessments as a continuum, the skills required for moderation and collaboration, the controversy about learning styles, and the importance of context in teaching and learning. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine. Hello and welcome to Write Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and I'm here today with Lawrence Sherman, who is president of Meducate Global. Welcome, Lawrence. Hello, Alex. So nice to see you after all these years. It's good to have you here. And when I say have you here, of course, I mean in a virtual space where we're all hanging out more and more these days. So as with all of our episodes so far, you know, I like to start with asking you the question, about how you ended up in the continuing healthcare education world. So could you share with listeners who you are and what you do and how you landed here? Sure. Sit back, put your feet up. This is going to take a while. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I initially thought I was going to be a clinician. I really thought medicine was what I was going to do. And so that was my initial pursuit. And during those years, I was also a volunteer EMT and medic and all that. And very quickly, uh, one of my professors said to me, I think you have the ability to teach. Now, I was a wallflower. Now, (laughs) you know me. I I don't come across as a wallflower. But until college, I was a wallflower. And Professor Harold Leibowitz, I have to thank for who I am today, because he said, why don't you give a lecture in my EMT course this year? And so just a year into being an EMT, so I was 19, I taught for the first time and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And just a side note, that was 1984. I still teach pre-hospital providers today. Okay. So, I, I mean, we're talking, that was my very first teaching gig. So, so it was always there and I always did some teaching. Um, as I progressed through deciding whether I was going to be a clinician or not, I realized I did not want to be a clinician. And so I kept teaching and I got a variety of different jobs where I could develop my skills as an educator. As many of us did, I started out in a medical education company and I ran projects and I ran projects and and then I sold projects. And then I realized that I was very much into the educational design. And through my pre-hospital teaching, I was able to get a certificate in uh, adult education. So um, I have a little bit of the medical background. I have a little bit of the education background. So when I say I'm a health professions educator, I I really have sort of that stuff. And I have been doing this full time for over 27 years. Now, it may shock you to know that because I look like I'm 29, (laughs) uh, but I've been doing this for uh, about almost 27 and a half years. One of the other things, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, is I've also done stand-up comedy. And part of my teaching skills, abilities, and, and I think the, the ability to be uh, improvisational comes from 
you can't put me in front of an audience and I can teach anybody to be in front of an audience that can't be as bad as being at a comedy club in Brooklyn at two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night where everybody thinks they're funnier than you are. So th- there's a lot of stuff that contributed to getting me where I am today. And, and I'll tell you that currently my focus is not as a CME provider, but I'm working on the increasing the capacity of CPD educators around the world, doing faculty development. I spent a lot of the last 18 months helping health professions, educators in schools pivot to do digital teaching and things like that. So, so my areas of interest have grown mm-hmm. outside, but right in the dead center is CME, CPD, and IPCE, and I love it. And so, oh gosh, there are so many different things in there and so many threads to to pick up. But why do you think education is at the centre of what you do? I, I hear that you had that taste of speaking publicly and sharing information with EMT providers early on in your career. But why is education at the heart of what you do? Well, so I use the term lately, learning facilitator rather than educator, because I think it's about helping people to learn and understanding how different people learn differently and understanding that there's some elegance to being able to help different people learn the same stuff differently. So I've always enjoyed that. And I think it's about telling a story. I think it's about uh, building the story and telling a story, right? So a good comedian knows how to build the story up to the point of the punchline, and then the punchline should work, right? And people should laugh. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, but you have to assess, well, why didn't it work? Is it the audience? Is it the material? Is it the predisposition? Did they not understand it because the context wasn't there? So there's a lot of parallels there. So it's really nice. And and it goes back to the EMT teaching days early on, where a lot of the people that I taught were not EMTs by their primary job. They were volunteers. And it was Mm -hmm. sort of what they were doing to give back to their community. So you have people who were professionals, who had other day jobs, whatever they were doing. And now we're teaching them some stuff that's kind of deep, right? I I mean, anatomy, physiology. And when you get into the uh, advanced life support, you're teaching them pharmacology. You're teaching people who may during the day be a lawyer and you're teaching them to defibrillate on the weekends. I mean, that's not what most people do on the weekends. So, so, you know, being able to understand how to teach people who aren't necessarily still in the, I'm a student learning mode. And that's a lot like CME, right? Because we can't, treat health professionals who are practicing for 20, 30 years as if they're a medical or nursing student, right? They learn differently. So that's why it's right at the center. It's it's about facilitating learning in different types of people. I love that description. So let's kind of walk that back a little bit. There are three things that you've mentioned there that I think are, are important to unpack a little bit. One is people learning differently. So that kind of takes us into that slightly controversial territory of learning styles. You talked about context, making sure that the context for learning is there. And then you talked about, you didn't use the word, but I think you're talking about scaffolding, you know, kind of creating that, that layered approach so that people are kind of building on in a systematic and logical way. Can you talk first then about... What do you mean by learning differently? Because, you know, I've read a couple of posts lately on, I guess, kind of LinkedIn and some other areas where, you know, this notion that there are different learning styles keeps kind of coming back into the CME, CPD world as something that isn't quite accurate. And yet people themselves will tell you, this is how I learn. So I'd really like to hear your perspective on that. So I saw that same post that you saw, and I commented on that post, but it was a funny comment. So the reality is whether or not um, you can put learning styles in a box is probably very controversial, but people subjectively know what they think that they need and what they have found that they need to learn better, right? So I'm actually doing a webinar tomorrow for medical students in Europe to help them learn better. That's what they asked me to do. How can they learn better? And so I think there is something to be said for, we'll use something you said before, mixing methods, right? Because there's nothing worse than sitting in a lecture hall 
with a thousand other people hearing one person at the front of the room telling you about their favorite enzyme. To me, <laughs> I just, I can't learn, right? You, you can tell me that hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosyl transferase is the coolest enzyme in the world. Well, maybe it's got the coolest name, but there's nothing cool about it to me. Now, the person next to me may say, oh my God, I have waited my whole life to hear Professor Housen talk about hypoxanthine guanine phosphoribosyl transferase. This is the best thing ever. I am getting everything I need. So one could argue that the person next to me has a different style or appreciation or ability to learn better. Now, does it mean that they're completely a, an auditory learner and I'm completely a visual learner? And no, but I would also argue that when a surgical trainee uses a simulation model, they are getting some level of kinesthetic learning because they have to feel what it's like. The first time you put a suture in someone, you're kinesthetically learning whether you like it or not. Now, you may also be auditory learning because the surgeon next to you is saying, what are you doing? <laughs> and then you may be visually learning saying, oops, <laughs> right? So so there, there are different styles, but I, I think that's sort of my thought on, we need multiple levels of learning and we need multiple formats of, of learning facilitation to make something work. Right. I do sometimes wonder whether that expression of um, here's what I need to learn is as much an expression of I need to be seen and heard and I need you to understand where I'm coming from in order for me to learn what you want me to learn. Well, you know what that does, Alex, is it also speaks to the way we teach our teachers. Because if our teachers aren't learning facilitators, think of it in Europe where someone who is a teacher, they're called a reader. Mm-hmm. Right, there's, right. There's no worse term than a reader. I don't want somebody standing in the front of the room with a huge book turning page by page saying, today we'll learn about this and I'll tell you about this, right? But but think of the, just nomenclature alone mm-hmm. presents a challenge. So so we need the teachers to be the learning facilitators. They, they're the experts beyond experts, but we also need to understand that the students are absorbing and the students are retaining and the students may have questions and students are allowed to have questions and they shouldn't be told, hey, wait, wait till the end and then ask me all your questions because then you lose them. And what you want to do is keep them and engage them and and interest them and and enthrall them and make them love the stuff that you're talking about, just like you do, even if they don't. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true. I kind of wonder how much we're regressing in this sort of virtual space now too. I've been in a few presentations where exactly that has happened. There's been a a request to keep your questions to the end. And, you know, if you can keep your concentration going for 40 minutes without asking questions, then, you know, kudos to you. But it's a terribly kind of dry and challenging way to, you know, it's not teaching, it's not learning. Well, it's funny that you say that because I think I mentioned earlier, I spent a better part of the last 18 months helping uh, teachers teach better virtually. And there are some best practices. You know, I I hyper use the chat box. I hyper use the Q&A function. I always encourage people to have a wing person who's watching the chat box while I'm giving a talk or vice versa, so that there's a constant opportunity for engagement, but there's also a constant opportunity for formative assessment, right? Because if you're not hitting that button, if you're not getting that message across, you're not losing the people. You don't have to have them wait 40 minutes, right? But you have the opportunity to say, I need to engage now. And man, when you do that, that, that's a big thing. The other thing I've started doing in, in digital presentations is I start out by saying, why are you here, right? What, what, what's your burning question? And so I, I start with a real-time needs assessment and I keep that assessment going through. And then at the end, I'll say, did I answer all the questions? So it's, it's a, an assessment-based approach. It's not dissimilar from the paper we wrote with uh, Don Moore a couple of years ago where we talk about there's a continuum of assessment. Right? Mm-hmm. Needs assessment, formative assessment, summative assessment. What do you need to know? Am I meeting your needs? And did I meet your needs? Do you see much formative assessment in the work that you do? Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, it depends in which environment you ask. 
There's probably not as much formative assessment, certainly in the standard CMECPD stuff that you see a lot. And there's opportunities. It's funny, when we were writing the paper, Don and I were going back and forth on whether you could have formative assessment within an individual activity, because most educators think of it within the context of a curriculum, right? Right. And so if you train faculty well during a synchronous educational activity, you can build in some level of formative assessment to say, uh, am I meeting your needs? And, and that's where that constant questioning comes in. So I'm seeing more of that digitally. Mm-hmm. I like to see it when we get back to face-to-face. Remember what face-to-face is where there's lots of people in a room all together, remember? Dimly, yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're in a room together dimly? No, I remember dimly. Oh, I see, I see. <laughs> oh, they might be dimly, but that's a different kind of meeting. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Dimly lit or dimly taught, either way. Yeah. But, but I think... There's the opportunity to help faculty who deliver those presentations to build that in, whether it's through polling, raise your hand, green card, red card, whatever it is. And side note, remember, a lot of the people that we use to teach in the CME stuff that you and I have done through the years are not necessarily all trained as educators. Right. They're clinician educators with the emphasis on clinician. And so when we have the opportunity to provide them with additional skills and help them to be better teachers and learning facilitators, you do see that formative assessment and you do see that built in. I will say where I do see it in CME is when you have an activity up, a digital activity up, and you're, you're doing pre and post questioning or some level of engagement, and you're seeing that a question is not being answered correctly consistently. Then you have to go back and say, is it the faculty? Is it the content? Is it the context? And you have the opportunity to change. You know, the nice thing now is the digital tools are so much better than they were when we started e-learning 270 years ago, right? Where it mm-hmm. took a Herculean effort to make an edit. But now you have the opportunity to do that. I do see formative assessment and I'm, I'm exposed more to the undergraduate and postgraduate education now. And okay. I do see it built in there. And part of that is because undergraduate and postgraduate educators are usually more likely to have received some training in education and certainly outside the U.S. rather than inside the U.S. You see that. So it's not the -the on-the-job training, but but there are these people who get master's in medical education and they do it purposely or part of a a master's or a PhD or in in the U.K. what they call an MD is Mm -hmm. part of uh, it is in how do you teach and, and how do you facilitate learning. So I do see it there more and I see it more outside the U.S. than inside the U.S., but I certainly see it to, to a critical mass here. So I, I definitely want to circle back to that different kind of approach to education outside the, the U.S. One of the things that you mentioned earlier that I said, those three things, scaffolding, context and, and learning styles, context, you've, you've talked about that a couple of times now. So what do you see as best practices in determining context the contexts of not only learning, but the contexts in which people are going to put that learning into practice. So it's content plus context, right? I think we sometimes leave out the context part and the educators of the world, uh, some of them call it germane learning, right? So what it is, is it's learning that's relevant to your need, workplace, environment, et cetera. So what you have is you have the opportunity to say, not this is the best new antihypertensive ever, but understand who's in your audience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave a talk once that was how is stand-up comedy like medical education? And the answer is know your audience. You can't teach every audience the same way, same way you can't tell a joke to different audiences the same way. So understanding who's in the audience, what's their level of understanding, what are their needs, how do they practice, et cetera, provides the context So again, it goes back to who's doing the teaching. If who's doing the teaching is using tools to understand who they're teaching at the moment, it's almost a real-time needs assessment, Alex, right? So it's, it's, we've done our needs assessment. We know that there's a knowledge gap or a professional practice gap, but what are the needs of the people in the room? Maybe very different than your expectations. So you can't teach the same way. You have to teach up, teach at, or teach down, depending on what's necessary, or totally go 180 degrees the opposite. You could go in and the room knows more than you do about the topic. So what do you do then? So that's where context matters. Context also matters. Something I I think you ought to talk about later is when you think about uh, cultural issues, racial issues, social issues, 
Not every patient looks the same and where you practice matters and who's in your practice as patients matters and who you're likely to encounter to provide care to matters. So when I'm teaching you, I need to make sure that I'm teaching you within the context in which you're practicing, not here. That's why, you know, we, we, I'm sure you and I have seen dozens of these uh, activities where they bring international experts in. So the international expert goes up and gives a presentation. Now they have a great name and a great pedigree, but if they don't know the practice environment and they're teaching about how they do it in their hospital and products aren't available, certain types of technicians aren't available, the environment isn't right, I'm tuning you out and I'm going to start to text somebody. So, you know, that's that contextual need. And what best practices do you see that really are able to kind of dig into that contextual need? Because I'm sure that you've seen a lot of generic education activities and programs that have clearly paid no attention whatsoever to who's doing the work, where they're practicing, the patients they're serving, and what some of the constraints are in their ability to deliver quality care. So so let me give you a worst practice before I give you a best practice. A worst practice is asking demographic questions and not using the results, right? So, So the best practice is asking demographic questions and then teaching based on that. So who's in the room? Who's participating? Or offering a collection of educational activities so that it fits based on either a self assessment or a self-selection, right? Because there's all of the theories that go out there on readiness to change. But I think a lot of that ties back to having best practices in making sure the context is appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a, let's use oncology as an example. If you're a community-based oncologist and you see people with a variety of solid and liquid tumors, then you have a need to know a lot about a lot of stuff, right? It's like being a GP in oncology. So there's that. If you are a hyperspecialist, if you are a left lung, a non-small cell lung cancer only person, then that's your context. You don't even worry about the right lung, right? It's just the left lung. So understanding that you can't teach those two people the same way is very important. And understanding that the content is not the same. So I think the best practice is embracing heterogeneity. Right? The best practice is understanding that even if you have a room full of oncologists, there's still a bell-shaped distribution of who those oncologists are and what they do. So embracing the heterogeneity and, and helping learning facilitators slash educators slash teachers to understand who's in the room and teaching to it. And how much of that understanding do you think really occurs? I mean, you've talked about faculty and training faculty and working with faculty to help them become, you know, better facilitators, better educators, particularly those who are, you know, have really kind of focused their attention on on clinical education. I guess there's a couple of questions there. One is, what are some of the things that you recommend for working with faculty to enable them to become better facilitators and read the room And second, you know, who knows when we'll all be able to be back in in such a room again. But I feel that this probably relates to virtual learning environments as well. Is that agility to not only read the room, but change to pivot the way in which you're going to teach and what you're going to teach, depending on what's in front of you? So two questions there. And forgive me if I I can repeat them again. No, you couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I probably couldn't because I couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah. So so I think part of it goes to faculty identification selection, right? So we often have seen through the years that we pick the smartest people, the lead researcher, the person who knows the most about a topic and says, we say, well, there's the person who could teach. And you know what? Sometimes they can, but sometimes they can't. And I'm on record saying, you know, sometimes I've seen the smartest person in the world on a topic be the worst educator about it. And it's hard for them to convey how much they know about something to a room of people who don't love it as much as he or she does. Mm -hmm. So so part of it is identification selection of the appropriate faculty. The other thing, because the majority of folks who listen to this are probably CME, CPD, IPCE people, is build in 
when you recruit the faculty, prepare them that you're going to work with them to help them to teach. And, you know, the ones who say, I know how to teach, I don't need it. That could be a go, no go decision. And I've through the years not recruited those people to teach because I knew that either the the educational methodology or, or what we were trying to accomplish needed someone who was facile and agile and willing to work with others and willing to be that learning facilitator and willing to take a step back and say, if you don't understand this, let me regroup. Let me address it a different way. Let me see what's holding you up. But if it's one person out of 100 that's not getting it, have the ability to pivot and say, I hear your concerns, but I need to make sure that I meet the needs of everybody else here. I will stay afterwards or I'll give you my phone number and we can talk through that one issue that's sticking with you. So you you have to recruit the right person. Then you have to have the ability to provide that training in the context of we're not telling you you're not a good teacher. We're giving you skills that you may not have. And one of the places and best practices I've seen it work well is when you bring all of the faculty for an activity together and you let them cross-pollinate. So it feels like a peer-to-peer training session. It's not some knucklehead in the front of the room saying, uh, this is how you're going to teach and this is what we need you to do, right? But it's really a, a how can we add to our teaching toolbox? And so if you have the right people and give them the right skills, I think it leads to your second question that gives them the ability to pivot. The other thing that I often did was um, we would use one of our own staff to moderate the meeting. I often did this. So you had a chairperson and a moderator. So the moderator was able to be the bad guy and keep people on time, on target, stimulate, ask the questions say to the chairperson, look at that response to that audience response question. What do you think about that? So the, the weight doesn't fall on their shoulders to see those. One of the things we, we always call them teachable moments, right? Mm-hmm. I think when the, the data come from the learners, they're learnable moments, right? So it's identified by the learners and the data up there give the faculty a teachable moment, but give the learners a learnable moment. Right. And so I, I think that's, that's where you see it work really well. I love that. And I'm guessing that there are differences here between academic, healthcare education, CME, CPD, and commercial companies. You know, one of the things I hear a lot from, you know, people who are in the role of planning and delivering uh, CME, CPD programs is that it's really challenging to work with faculty in that role because they are not trained to do so very often. And there's also this I'm going to call it a deferential dialectic. There's a kind of deference to faculty because they're faculty after all, and they are the experts. But that deference gets in the way of being able to train them to be good facilitators in a continuing healthcare education context. Well, you know, I think it goes back to what's the relationship you form with the faculty. The deference happens because of my least favorite phrase ever, which is because that's the way we've always done it, right? (laughs) We've always said, okay, well, we've got this great education and we've recruited the faculty. Oh, there's the faculty. So they don't like the slides or they want us to prepare it or they have a canned presentation that they want to give, right? The reality is it's you're setting up a relationship to say, this is our educational activity and you are a really important part of it. In fact, you are the most important part of it, separate from the learners, is you, because you're the ones who have to help the learners understand. And so here's what we need you to be able to do. And while you can still be deferential and respectful, you have to have the right person from the provider side, whether it be academic, commercial, or any specialty society anywhere, whose job it is to have that relationship with the faculty. And it has to be someone that is able to build a relationship that the faculty respects them as much as they respect the faculty. If you put an untrained person as the main point of contact for the faculty, I can tell you as someone who has been in that faculty spot, it is very uncomfortable and it, it could turn you off before you really get a chance to dig into what the activity is. So it's incumbent upon the provider organization to own the activity and own the relationship and make sure that you're putting the right person in front of the faculty because they are that important to the success of the activity. Mm -hmm. 
And is that something that you do in your capacity building role in a European context at the moment? Well, so what, what the, the capacity building project is just kicking off. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to get people who will be teaching in the uh, CPD activities, but will also be CPD developers. And so what we want to do is that's a skill set that we have to develop. It's a competency, right? So the ability to teach or the ability to develop education and collaborate with a teacher is a, an incredibly important skill. And I will say that it's a global issue, right? So while I'm working with the Association for Medical Education in Europe, Amy, on a CPD capacity building project that just kicked off, we've also just done assessments of CPD systems in China, Latin America, the Middle East to supplement the ones that I've previously done in Japan and Southeast Asia. What we're finding is who's teaching in CPD and CME varies greatly. Right. And the skills that they have. And one of the things that I always ask when I'm doing that research is, have you had any formal training in education? And the majority worldwide who do CME teaching haven't. The ones that have are the ones that um, CME or CPD teaching is a bolt on to their postgraduate teaching or their undergraduate right. teaching. So they're teachers and then they're brought into CPD rather than CPD people who are teaching, if that makes sense. It does. And you know what? I'm guessing that there are probably more people in CME CPD in a European context who do have some exposure to formal training in, in education than many academics in European universities. Because in the academic context, you know, you end up teaching through research. And there's this whole kind of assumption and uh, kind of smoke and mirrors to some extent that if you are you know, able to do research, get your PhD, your master's, whatever, you will be able to teach. And I don't think that's changing very much at the moment. So it'd be interesting to see how that kind of parallel system in medical education shifts. Yeah, I, you know, I think part of it is where you are. So for instance, in the UK, the emphasis in CPD is on revalidation. Right. So it's a it's a checklist system. I mean, that hyper simplifies it. But th there really are things that you have to do in order to it's sort of like maintenance of licensure, right? Maintenance of certification here. There it's revalidation. But there that's the emphasis of CPD is keeping people validated. Right. <laughs> and that's that's fine. OK, there are other places where it's more on a very local grassroots level and it's just it's a lot of peer to peer teaching. And, you know, another area of interest for me is this informal and incidental education. A lot of CME and CPD happens accidentally. Right. Right. You know, uh, two people are talking and they're both clinicians and one says to the other, hey, you know, I just had this really interesting case. And the other says, you know, I had one like that, too. Here's what I did. Oh, wow. I didn't consider that. Well, you know what? That's as important uh, a form of CPD as sitting in a room learning about that enzyme I mentioned earlier. So, so I think you know the big picture of what CPD and CME is. That's also context, right? Mm -hmm. Is uh, what forms the big package of it. So, you know, it's not just that formal teaching by people who shouldn't be teaching, and it's not just the phenomenal simulation-based education or the great education that's being provided by people who do have the gift of being a learning facilitator, but it's all of that. And it really, it's incumbent upon the learner, right? Because we talk about these master adaptive learners that we're trying to create, mm -hmm. right? So it's incumbent upon these learners, not just to be satisfied with the information that's given to them, but to say, I have a question that arose. I know how and where to go to find the information. Now I need to see if what I learned is applicable and I will make a change because of that. So we have to change it. So it's, it's sort of like what we, we need to create these on-demand CPD learners and not just say, here's a curriculum. Because one of the things that I've seen in, in assessing CPD systems is there are some countries where a ministry of health sets the topics that are of importance for CME this year, and that's all that's available. So, and if you don't see patients with those 10 things, then there's no CME that's relevant contextually for you and it just doesn't work and other places they don't even care if you do any cme there are countries in this world that have no system in place at all and it doesn't matter once you graduate and you get your license however in that country you get your license you are not required to have one iota 
of additional education. So this is a very, very, very heterogeneous environment in which we chose to work. No, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. Do you see, you mentioned adaptive learners, do you see generational changes in, you know, I'm at the tail end of the baby boom. And so do you see differences in the way in which boomers learn, Gen X, Gen Z, and how adaptable they are when it comes to figuring out what it is they need to learn and how they need to learn it? Yes, kind of with an asterisk. Because uh, again, <laughs> In any population, you're, you're going to have a huge distribution of different types of the way people learn. Sure. I think when you're a digital native, from that point forward, you have expectations of how uh, technology needs to be used. When you're the last of the baby boomers, you have the way you learned pedagogically, right, as a yep. kid. But there are a lot of us, so I'm just at the beginning of Gen X. So, so you and I are at the, the continental divide there, right? So right. I am as tech, as mobile, as driven by learning quickly, fast, with expectations, as many millennials. There are equally a big number of folks who still want to sit in a classroom and want to learn and don't want to be made, turned into something that's hyper-adaptable. They want to be told how to learn. Yes. And quite frankly, a lot of this goes into the selection process in the health profession schools. You talk to the folks who are on um, admissions committees, they're looking for different skill sets now. Yeah. They're not just looking for the science kid, like when I was applying right? They're, they're looking for other skill sets. So it's not just the generation, but it's the pool of people who are making up the learners now too. So I think there's, there's a more of a mix. There's more of a mix. We're also seeing more uh, female than male students being accepted, at least in the U.S., into mm -hmm. health profession schools and medical schools. And I think we're seeing a nice level of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we're seeing lots of new and different folks with new and different requirements, needs, and wants. And I think that's what, to answer your question, Alex, I think we're seeing that not just intra-generationally, but intergenerationally. I talk a lot, don't I? Well, that's the point, Lawrence. It's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I ask the questions, you answer. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned changes in the selection process of, you know, who's entering health professions. And thank goodness, because that conversation about selection has been going on for decades. And, you know, we need to have more than the science guy. Person. <laughs> yeah. But it, for a long time, it was the science guy, right? 100%. It was a white male person who was uh, fully invested in science, mm -hmm. um, who kind of ended up in particularly medicine. You know, you describe yourself as a global medical education futurist. What does that mean and what do you see in the future for CMECPD? So a lot of what we've talked about was what I saw happening in the future in the past, right? So it's how do we pick the right faculty? How do we do the right thing? How do we set ourselves up for success? So, for instance, one of the things that I think about in CPD futurism is where do we start teaching the learners about CPD? I'm talking about this in my webinar that I'm leading tomorrow. We need to get the students thinking about CPD when they're still students, right? We right. need to prepare them to be lifelong learners, not just tell them that they're lifelong learners. So I think we need to watch trends and technology, but we need to watch it from early on. So how are we training our healthcare professionals so that we are prepared to do the CPD for them later, right? Because to your point, there are changes and it can't just be the satellite symposium at the major medical Congress. And it can't just be an hour long online activity. We need to think about where they learn, why they learn and how they learn and sort of thinking about that. Uh, we need to think about who's going to be teaching these folks in CPD in five years and in 10 years and in 20 years, because the people who are medical students now 
are going to have very different, they're going to have a greater need for information because we see the information revolution continue and we see how much comes out on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. So we need to be ready to teach to what's needed in the future, not for what we're doing now. So I think of it, there's sort of a timeline. There's an innovator, right? An innovator does things a little bit differently, but it's kind of cool. There's a disruptor who says, I'm going to change the way we do things. And then there's a futurist who says, we're going to need to do things differently downstream. So we need to start thinking about it now. So it's sort of a timeline. And and I've sort of skated on that timeline. And now I'm downstream because I want to make sure that the practitioners of tomorrow will receive their CPD and all of their health professions education together and appropriately. And the other thing is we have to think interprofessionally. And we have to think interprofessionally earlier, right? There are schools where they commingle medicine, nursing, pharmacy, physiotherapy, et cetera, Mm -hmm. in school. And then we need to teach them from the beginning that they're going to be part of a team. We can't say, you, you don't teach a violinist only by themselves and then send them out to play in an orchestra, right? Because that would not be good. But we need to teach them the skills they need to have individually. And very quickly, we need to show how they're going to be part of a bigger team so that the ultimate end product is right. And I think, sadly, we're still a little behind in that. The whole joint accreditation process that ACCME, ANCC, and ACPE started, and now they're up to, what, eight or nine different professions that you can get with a unified uh, application process is a huge step towards uh, interprofessionalism. But we still need to have systems in place where the systems support interprofessional collaborative practice. So being a futurist is we have to make sure that the environment is always going to be receptive for the teams to come in to be successful. And you've mentioned heterogeneity and diversity, inclusion and access a few times as well. Where do you see these things informing the kind of education that we need to be thinking about for now and for the future? Well, what a great world we live in that there are so many different people and how diverse it is, right? And everybody's the same. And, And I think this has to form the foundation of how we teach health professions practitioners and how we teach health professions educators. I am blessed Uh, in that I have traveled to dozens of countries around the world where I represent the minority, where I represent diversity. And, you know, it's really eye-opening. Again, it's a blessing. It really is because you you get to look at the world through a different lens. Um, At Amy, we're doing this capacity building project. And one of the modules that it looks like we're going to have not only in our CPD training course, but it, we're hoping that it will be applicable across all because we, we have great programs that train uh, health professions educators across the continuum. But it, it'll focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it, it's got to focus on how we teach, who we teach, what we teach, when we teach. So it's our patients are diverse, our patients have equity, and we are inclusive. Our students have them, our faculty have them. And so we have to look at the world through that lens. And if we don't, we're making a huge mistake. So it used to only be the hierarchy of profession. And then there was the hierarchy of race or gender. Now we are all an admixture of equality. And our education and our training and our practice has to be reflective of that. So there's a connection here. You've talked about humour a couple of times and how important humour is in education. But humour, of course, is highly contextualised. <laughs> and, you know, and what is funny to you might not be funny to me and all those kinds of things. So tell us the role that you think humour plays in professional education and how we can capture its magic for heterogeneity. So uh, let's contextualize here. You can't make somebody funny. And to your point, uh, humor is very individual. So I will tell you that uh, back in 2007, 
I actually got a grant to study the impact of humor in continuing medical education. I presented the results at the Alliance meeting the following January. And what we did was we tried to use a little bit of humor in an online activity. We did uh, two identical online activities with the same faculty member. One was a straight as developed CME e-learning activity. And one, we built in some funny slides. The guy happened to be kind of funny, but and what we found was humor supported the education, supported engagement, had better outcomes at the end, and was more highly evaluated. So there's a role for it. It's a, a small study, right? But it, it tells you that, but you'd probably think that anyway. The reality is when I talk about humor, there's two different components. The part of humor that's most relevant to teaching, education, and learning is improv, the ability, and it goes mm. back to the question you asked earlier. It's the ability to think on your feet. And comedians, by and large, are able to think on their feet. So when somebody yells something out from the audience, you use it, you don't ignore it, right? So, so that's the one of the competencies of humor that's adaptable to health professions education. There is also, I'd like to think that at least some of the presentations I've given or some of the, the, the things that I've taught were not designed to be funny, but because the environment worked, know your audience contextually, mm -hmm. humor was able to be used to keep the, the education going. But I don't think I would ever support saying, let's just develop, you know, comedy education, right? Yeah, because it doesn't work. And certain topics do not work <laughs> with humor. But it also helped in a clinical environment. It also helps to break the ice. Right. So, you know, where you can use it is ice breaking in an educational activity or something like that, but in a very controlled environment. And it's got to be pressure checked before you do it, because you say the wrong thing once and it never goes away. So carefully calibrated comedy. <laughs> oh, CCC. Yes. Yeah. And by CCC, I mean, yes, three times in Spanish. Okay, there you go. I love it. Actually, Nina Taylor, who's a vice president of education at the um, American Society of Radiation Oncologists, I think. I will double check that for the show notes. I first met Nina at an Alliance Quality Summit. She was at the American Association of Psychiatry uh, then, but she used improv. And improv is my worst nightmare. I do not want to engage in improv. But of course, the point is when you're in your discomfort zone, it sort of pushes you a little bit and then you relax and then all those magic physiological things happen that make you more receptive to learning. So there's kind of some interesting processes there uh, that I think need to be further explored in the role of comedy. And so maybe that's another grant for you to pursue in, in your spare time because I know you're super busy. We are up against uh, the end of our hour. Where can people find you? Well, I'm a hyper Twitter user. And on Twitter, I am at Meducate, M-Educate, right? So it's medical education. I I'm on LinkedIn. They could look at the Meducate Global website. I'm proud as anything that I gave a TED Talk on medical education, mm -hmm. and that's still available. It was 10 years ago. Wow. So that must have been pretty early on in the TED phenomenon. It was. The, the red circle was still growing at that time. And by that, I mean the red circle that they require you to stand on or you're electrocuted if you step off. Right. <laughs> so so th that's really the, the easiest way to find me. I'm very Googleable, but I will say I have a Google ganger and a Google ganger is like a doppelganger, but it's if you Google Lawrence Sherman, you'll find either me or Lawrence Sherman, the Cambridge criminologist. And I can't tell okay. you how many people view my LinkedIn <laughs> profile with criminological pedigrees. So um, if you look for me or my stuff, it's, it's best to do Lawrence Sherman Medical Education, <laughs> because otherwise you'll get the, the dude in Cambridge who is far more out there than I am. Well, nothing sinister there, of course. <laughs> Anything that you want to uh, share with listeners before we wrap up? I will say that if you're interested on the global side of uh, CME, because I know that's one of the things we were going to touch on, um, there are several conferences in addition to the Alliance Conference that I think it's worth checking out. There's the European CME Forum, 
and that's going to be in November, and that's going to be a hybrid event. But it's worth checking out because you really do get a nice perspective on what Europe is doing. And uh, there's great stuff when folks from the from North America participate in that. They always leave with some great take home messages. I, I don't get anything from it. I just I'm just saying that I, I get that question a lot uh, about global stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I will say that at some point at Amy, we will be uh, launching this capacity building project where we will have a, a formalized training program for CPD folks. And uh, it might be interesting to see. And really, uh, we have a LinkedIn CME group, and I know you're a part of that. We really try to get questions and answers there focused on CME and CPD. And so if folks have questions or best practices or how things have been done, feel free to join that group. And we try to share there. And the moderators and I really try to keep it free from other stuff. And we really try to keep it focused on discussions around what we do. Lauren Sherman, comedian, learning facilitator, not a criminologist. Thank you so much for spending time talking to me today. I may become a criminologist now just to prove you wrong. (laughs) You can do it. (laughs) Thank you, Alex. This was, uh, time flew by. Yeah, it did, right? (laughs) It did. One of the topics we touched on in this episode is how deference to faculty sometimes gets in the way of being able to train them to be good facilitators in a continuing healthcare education context. Cultivating strong relationship is one way to navigate that deference by having a strong leader at the helm of an education initiative who can own the initiative and own the relationship. Another way to navigate that deference is to build teaching capacity and develop faculty competencies. For Lawrence, the need for this capacity building, the imperative to develop teaching competencies, is global. It's the foundation for creating master adaptive learners in an educational context that is shifting generationally, as well as in terms of gender, ethnicity and other social and cultural differentiators. You can hear more from Lawrence via his TED Talk or catch him on social media. Like he said, he's a hyper Twitter user. His social links are in the show notes, as well as links to other resources that we touched on in our conversation. As ever, thank you for spending this time with me and Lawrence. I'd love to hear what you think. You can email me or write a podcast review. And if you haven't yet joined the Right Medicine community, there's a link in the show notes for that too. As a thank you, you'll receive downloadable bonus content from season one of the show. Until next time, I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine.